Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we continue our mini-series focused on D-Day, June 6, 1944. And as mentioned in the last episode, we're going to veer off for a little bit here and spend a few episodes on Omaha Beach specifically. The idea when I was kind of grouping things together for D-Day was to talk about, you know, maybe a story about each unit, something about the 101st and the 82nd and the 4th ID. And then, you know, you got to make sure you tell the story of Utah and and then don't forget Point to Hawk. And then all of a sudden we're over at Omaha Beach. And I mean, this is such an important part of American military history that it's really hard to narrow it down. And there's not one story for Omaha, right? There's so many individual events up and down that beach throughout the day, varied so much, wave to wave, sector to sector, unit to unit. And I thought, frankly, it would just be a lot more fun to talk about this by sector rather than by beach. Remember, Omaha Beach is broken up into multiple sectors from east to west. Last episode, we talked about Fox Red Sector and First Lieutenant Jimmy Monteith, one of four Medal of Honor recipients on D-Day. Monteith was not supposed to come ashore at Fox Red, but was pushed off course, landed, took the fight to the enemy, and in short order that morning, leading tanks through a minefield, knocked out Strong Point WN-60. Now, just up the beach where Monteith was supposed to land was the Fox Green Sector. And coming ashore there was a gentleman known, named Staff Sergeant Raymond Strojny of Fox, Fox Company, 2nd Battalion, 16th Infantry. So same regiment and same 1st Infantry Division. Strojny, with a little help from a bazooka, would knock out a strong point of his own. Now, in military planning and operations, there's a saying that the enemy gets a vote. And I think this is a good time to talk about that vote, the German vote on Omaha Beach on D-Day. At a high level, there were two army groups tasked with defending against an Allied invasion in the West. They fell under Field Marshal von Rundstedt. One of the army group commanders was famously Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, arguably the most talented, most capable commander in the German military in World War II. There were about a million men that fell under this, under these two army groups, which Sounds like it is a lot, but they're also tasked with defending the entire Atlantic coast, 2,000 miles on or about. So that comes out to about 500 men per mile to defend the coastline. And it's a tough ask because they have to defend everything. The allies just have to find a little way in, right? So being on the defense in this situation, not really where you want to be. It's not how Germany's fought the war. This wasn't how they were successful to this point in the war. They weren't a static defense type military, but this is kind of the, the, you know, they made their bed. This is where they sit now. So there were strategies around what this defense would look like up to the highest levels of, of the German command. But if we're realistic, the allies kind of forced a plan. So there might've been some debate going on, but all of the options on the table maybe weren't realistic. And we'll get around to that. By June of 1944, Germany is fighting a multi-front war. Um, and of those multi-fronts, we're talking Italy in the West and in the East, 
most notably. Operation Barbarossa kicked off in 1941, June of 1941, with that's the war between Germany and the Soviet Union, and that is bleeding Germany white. By the end of the war, the Eastern Front would cost Germany over 5 million dead and over 4 million captured. I mean, they it is staggering losses, staggering losses on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. I mean, from very early on in the conflict, very early on in that war in the East, Operation Barbarossa, Germany's in a fight for their lives. And they're in this tough balancing act, if you put yourself in Germany's shoes, where they've you know, awoken the beast of the Soviet Union and are fending off the Red Army all of a sudden. But they have to consider that the Allies are coming. This, this, this amphibious landing is going to happen somewhere in the West, but it isn't right now. So you have to plan for this invasion. You can't give up the West, but you can't ignore the threat on the East. So what that means is that the top German units are going East because the fight is happening now. The newest German equipment is going east. The bulk of the supplies are going east. They're not, what's the right way to say this? They're not ignoring the West, but the West might be a little bit neglected in a couple ways. One, let's talk about the equipment. The bulk of the equipment is going east to hold back the Red Army. The equipment that makes it West is older and it's a hodgepodge. Think of all of the different countries that Germany has conquered and occupied at this point in the war by summer of 1944. They didn't burn up. Let's let's use the French military, for instance. They didn't burn up all of the French vehicles. They commandeered them and they used them. So the, the German military in France is using vehicles from the French military, some as old as World War I. The Polish military, they're using civilian vehicles. They're bringing new and old in from Germany. The lineup, if you just talk vehicles, but this extends to other equipment as well as weapons, ammunition, etc. It's a hodgepodge army. I mean, it's kind of a weird part of the Second World War, but the German army in France defending against the Allied invasion is closer to a horse-drawn army than modern mechanized forces. Many, many, many of these forces had no mobility at all. They walked to get from one place to the next, 1944. One of the issues they ran into then with this equipment, to get a little off track there, was if you're running a Polish Jeep, let's say, and it breaks down, you don't have the equipment on hand to replace that, right? They might have the equipment on hand to replace and fix German vehicles, but what if the German vehicles only make up 10% of your inventory? So it's a hodgepodge in the West. That applies to the artillery pieces in the Atlantic wall. It applies to, to a degree, tanks. The tanks are are almost exclusively German, but they're dealing with a lot of different variations as well. It's not the standardized military equipment that we often think of today. Just think of the headache, trying to keep those things up and running. A second big issue in the West was the troops. Again, Germany is sending their elite troops east to hold back the Red Army that kind of feels like at any point they might push back into Germany, which they, of course, eventually will do. Many of the troops in the West are what's called Ost Battalions or um, Eastern Legions, Eastern Battalions. And these are, just like the equipment, conscripted troops fighting for Germany. In some cases, they maybe were somewhat sympathetic to the German cause. In lots of cases, they weren't. They were 
maybe closer to a prisoner than anything else. Many of these Ost battalions were led by German soldiers, German non-commissioned officers and officers. And what you would see, I don't want to make a broad sweeping generalization. So this did happen. It's not as though it happened in every occurrence, but there were plenty of time, plenty of occasions where these Ost battalion troops, some Soviet citizens, um, would be manning defensive positions designed to beat back the Allied invasion, pointing a gun towards the sea, and behind them would be a German NCO or officer pointing a gun at them. Essentially, keep shooting, keep up the defense, or we'll kill you. So, yeah, it's a body. It's somebody that can pull a trigger and, and cause damage on the, the landing beaches, but you run some risk if you're Germany, if that's making up any percentage of your force, if it's you know conscripted labor, uh, that's not a great long-term solution. To, to sidetrack a little bit there, one of the mistakes the Allies made in our planning was we expected on Omaha for there to be about a battalion plus, so just over a battalion size, around a thousand. And we expected half of them to be this Ost battalion troops, which were more likely to not fight, more likely to surrender, and in some cases turn on their German um, leadership, I guess I'll say, killed the German leadership and then surrendered. So we thought that you know maybe 500 out of 1,000 that we're going to run into at Omaha would be these Ost battalion troops. The big mistake there was we missed, the Allies missed, that the 352nd Infantry Division recently moved into Omaha Beach, totaling about 8,000 total, and that was a German unit not Ost Battalion. So a little bit off in our planning, that would be one of the major factors in the devastation laid upon the landing forces at Omaha. So let's back up real quick and talk about the German strategy. In a perfect world, if you have to defend this size of a territory, you're talking about something like a zone defense. So think about it like sentries out there monitoring where the allies are coming ashore, where the landing is going to happen. And then you have a relatively mobile force in the Germans case, panzer armies, panzer divisions that strike, lash out, consolidate, move against the allies as they're coming inland. In a perfect world, you cut them off from the beachhead. You maybe annihilate a couple divisions. Maybe you can sink some ships out at sea because that way you can, you can, really mass your power against the beachhead all at once, right? Drive them back into the sea. But it just wasn't feasible at the time. It, that was something that was recommended by, by Rommel, but the, the reality didn't match what idealistically could have, been, could have been done. Not only did they have equipment and manpower shortages, like we've talked about, it's a little harder to do that type of operation with an Ost battalion. It's a little bit harder to do that when you're severely short in vehicles, not necessarily panzers, but vehicles. But we got to factor in the air superiority at the time. Even if, even if Rommel's idea of kind of more of a zone defense had been accepted, the Allies had total air superiority by June of 1944, and moving any sizable panzer force in daylight hours was, was dangerous. It's how they got wiped out. Um, so the idea of Germany being able to move around the battlefield at will to mass from, you know, move 500 miles across France to reposition for the Allied attack wasn't really in the cards for Germany at this point. 
And when we're talking about those Panzers, a couple notes, Rama wanted them moved relatively close to the shore so that when the Allied when the Allied landing was identified, he could quickly mass and, and, and attack. Runstead wanted them held further back. So there was a compromise made. And as is typically the case, when there's a compromise, nobody comes out happy. And three Panzer divisions went to each of the two army groups and four held in reserve. And famously, release criteria went to Hitler himself. So the commanders on the ground are not able to make decisions. Even if they can see the D-Day landings happening, they cannot release their Panzer divisions. That would be a major sticking point in whether or not the Allies were able to hold their beachhead. All of this put together meant that Germany had to settle on what we call a static defense. They have to stop, and this is where you've heard um, famously Rommel said this before, we have to stop them at the beaches. We're not going to be able to counterattack in force like we once hoped. The solution then is they build up what's known as the Atlantic Wall. It's a defenses all up and down well, the Atlantic coast. It's going to use 17 million cubic yards of concrete and 1.3 million tons of steel. There are guns brought in from everywhere. It's not just German guns. It's it's captured French guns. And I mean, in any country where Germany has troops, they now have guns set up on the Atlantic wall. It's a crazy defense. So let's dive into Omaha Beach a little more specifically because that's where Staff Sergeant Strazi is going to attack on June 6th. All up and down Omaha Beach are these resistance nests, WN and then a number. WN-61 sat in the heart of the Fox Green sector, right in the middle of the landing beach. WN-61 was manned by about 20 men, and it had a couple key armaments. First was a German 88. This was an artillery piece known for its accuracy, its lethality. There were only two of them on Omaha. This was one of the two, and it was set up on the eastern side of Omaha shooting west. What these many of these guns were designed to do was not to shoot directly out into the ocean, but to crisscross along the beach. So they would shoot the length of the beach. And what that meant was that the troops on the far, say, western side of Omaha could be getting hit by an 88 they couldn't even see. And then the troops, like Staff Sergeant Strajny's, charging ahead on Fox Green, can't even see the 88 that's firing, killing his brothers a few miles down the beach because the protection would be facing the sea for the 88, right? Anyways, WN61 has an 88. It has a 50 millimeter, 50 millimeter anti-tank gun and multiple machine guns up and down the uh, up and down the trenches. Remember, these these resistance nests are more complexes. There's multiple con- reinforced concrete bunkers, firing points, trench lines surrounded by barbed wire and mines. From WN61, the German soldiers are looking out at the obstacles. The obstacles start, the obstacles on the beach, static obstacles are designed to be underwater at high tide, exposed at low tide. And there's four lines of obstacles. The furthest out are Belgian gates. They're big steel pieces of equipment. They're mobile anti-tank obstacles. And what it does, is it forces tanks or equipment to move around them because they can't go through them. Forces the attackers into certain positions that are covered then by machine guns, mortars, artillery, whatever it might be. 30 meters inland, you would have poles dug into the ground facing seaward with anti-tank mines or artillery around sometimes at the tip designed to detonate when hit by landing craft. Another 30 meters inland and you had ramps usually made out of logs and the ramps faced inland. So when 
landing craft, like those that Staff Sergeant Strajny was riding in, came over them at high tide, the landing craft could ride up it and flip over. That was the intended purpose of the ramps. Finally, you had hedgehogs, these twisted metal kind of L and I beams that were also anti-tank obstacles. But if a landing craft hit it, it could get hung up or even um, puncture the side and, and cause the landing craft to sink. Once you get through all of those, if you get through all of those, you've got open beaches with little to no cover until you hit barbed wire and minefields. Those open areas of the beaches, well, every area was covered by German machine gun, 88, anti-tank fire, mortars, artillery. I mean, it was, it was a killing field. It was designed as a killing field, right? That's what we've been talking about. That's what Germany's setting up here is a static defense killing zones all up and down the Atlantic coast. At 6.30 in the morning on June 6, 1944, Staff Sergeant Strajny and his men are moments away from landing on Fox Green Sector on Omaha Beach. Now, they're not supposed to. They're supposed to land at the Easy Red Sector. And it's easy to overlook this and say, well, they just landed a little further down the road. They're still going to charge inland and, and, and get the job done. But they've been rehearsing for months. The location, the expected terrain in front of them, you know, where the bunkers are, where the pillboxes are, where the paths off the beach are, where the minefields are, this is this is their life or death moment. This is where many will fall, making split second decisions. Think of the things they're trying to remember and where the walls are and where the 88 might be and where the mortar positions might be. All of those things they've tried so hard to remember and recognize when we get off the landing craft, we have to blank, right? Whatever it is, they've got their job, they've got their task. And then that ramp comes down. You look ahead and it's unfamiliar. You're in the, you're totally, I mean, you're in the wrong sector of the beach. They would at least not be that far off. I mean, Lieutenant Jimmy Monteith landed 500 meters off from the beach that he landed 500 meters west of the wrong beach. I mean, he was way off, way, way off. At least Staff Sergeant Strajny wasn't that far off. They landed on Fox Green instead of Easy Red, but they are... Next to each other, he'd be um, alongside a lot of soldiers from the 29th Infantry Division. You talk about landing off their uh, off their desired beach. They were supposed to be on the entire other side of Omaha. Nonetheless, the ramp comes down. They have to get to work. The officer in charge of Strajny's boat is hit quickly, dies. They move inland, take the cover that they can, and it's time to just figure this out. It's not the beach they thought they were going to land at, but they still have obstacles in front of them. They need to clear the way and they need to open a beachhead for the following waves to get ashore. As they come ashore, they run face first into WN-61. WN-61 is only 40 meters from the high water point. It might be the, I think it's the forward most strong point on Omaha Beach. Now there's pros and cons to that. The German advantage is that they have these machine gun positions and heavy machine gun positions lined up right up against the Allied landing forces. And a machine gun at 40, 100, 200 meters is devastating. I mean, it's going to be hard to miss for some of these German soldiers. The German disadvantage is if they do miss any American soldiers, they're going to be right on top of them in a heartbeat. And that's what happens here. Fortunately for the Americans on the beach, a couple tanks do make it ashore and in short order knock out the German 88. But 
They then recognized that wasn't the only danger in WM61 as the 50 millimeter anti-tank gun opens fire, destroys multiple tanks. I think three tanks were knocked out just from that one anti-tank gun and is just laying waste to, I mean, soldiers in the open stand no chance against this thing. 50 millimeter gun, it's hammering landing craft coming ashore. I mean, think about if it's knocking out tanks, imagine what it's doing to the plywood sides of the Higgins boats coming ashore up and down the beach. Strajny said after the fact that he just started to get frustrated. It was just like a methodical thump, thump, thump coming out from that 50 millimeter cannon, destroying everything up and down the beach. He got frustrated, got aggravated and said enough. Now his bazooka crew wasn't around, killed, wounded, didn't make it ashore. So he tried to find another crew. The bazooka being this man portable anti-tank weapon could also be used against fixed positions like the bunker at WN61, but it was not a long range weapon. I mean, some folks said 30 meters was kind of the desired range. You're really not going to have much luck in terms of accuracy over a hundred. So you got to be close. Strajny finds a sergeant with a bazooka and points out the target to him and says, I need you to hit that bunker now. And the sergeant kind of says, well, I can't, I can't see it. So Strajny kind of talks him into it there, right? You know, right there. And then the sergeant says, well, I don't have a loader and I can't shoot without a loader. And you can kind of hear, you kind of know what I'm getting at, right? The guy's just looking for reasons to maybe not expose himself to enemy fire and which is understandable. I mean, they're in the first wave on Omaha. If, if, if Strajny finds a guy that's scared, then that should be expected. Strajny talks him into firing, loads the bazooka for him, you know, comes up with a solution. They get two rounds off, miss wildly, not anywhere close to the actual 50 millimeter cannon they're trying to knock out. But what it does do is catches the enemy's attention. And very quickly, mortar rounds fall right between Strajny and this sergeant that was firing the bazooka. The mortar round would severely wound that sergeant, damage the bazooka, but somehow Strajny, which is kind of a theme for the rest of his day, walks away really not injured at all. He picks up the bazooka and moves ahead to find another firing position. But there's a risk here because the bazooka is damaged. And there's a chance when you put a round through a bazooka that's damaged, bent in any way, misshapen, it could blow up in his face. I mean, the first round could detonate his face. The second round could do it. He might get three rounds off and the fourth one blows up in his face. It's a risky move to use it, but he moves ahead anyways because that 50 millimeter gun is still hammering. He moves forward, gets two rounds off, nothing. Then he moves into a grassy area. And on Omaha Beach, all of the vegetation had been removed for the most part, especially in the landing areas. Grassy areas meant that it was a minefield, that nobody went in there. Strajny somehow moves through the minefield without detonating anything, sets up shop. And remember, if he can see the cannon, they can see him. He loads more rounds. The bazooka is a two-person weapon. It's supposed to be loaded by somebody else. Um, it's really, really hard to fire that weapon system and load it with as one person. Um, this isn't like... You know, today we look at the the 240 Bravo machine gun and say, well, that's a two-person weapon system. But the reality is one can do just fine. It's just more effective with two. 
the bazooka was almost unusable with one person. I mean, it had to be two. Strajny figures out a way to load the bazooka by himself in the middle of a minefield within well within 100 meters of the 50 millimeter cannon that is mowing down tanks all around him. Gets a few more rounds off before he hits an ammunition dump. It goes up as an it, it detonates the explosion or it detonates the ammunition dump, killing the soldiers in the strong point, clearing the way for his guys to move inland. Now, just like earlier, a guy sitting out in the open firing a bazooka gets the enemy's attention, and before long, he is shot. Shot through the helmet. Miraculously, it goes in just above his eye, through the helmet, kind of rides around and exits the back of the helmet. He, he, he gets a scratch on the head. It's crazy. But you think at that point, when he somehow survived the mortar round going off right next to him and then getting shot in the helmet and you know nothing to show for it, you'd think that might be enough, might slow down for the day. But no, he got up, led his men forward to knock out the remaining two machine guns in WN-61. Remember, these large connected bunker systems. So just because he's knocked out the 50 millimeter doesn't mean that the entire strong point is, is done. He makes sure over the next little bit of time here to completely wrap up clearing WN-61. And now with the two major weapon systems, the 88 and the 50, knocked out of this strong point, Fox Green was opening up for the following waves. For his actions that day, Staff Sergeant Raymond Strajny was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross and would pass away, or he would survive the war, and passed away in 2008. Now, just down the beach, and shortly after Strajny made it ashore, other landing forces leveraged a different asset in the battle, the largest weapon system in the fight. Allied battleships firing point-blank into German positions. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.